Welcome to the Spiritual Recovery Workshop. My name is Susan. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me serenity to accept things I cannot change, courage to change things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronics be turned off now. We remind you that this session is being recorded. All speakers must sign the release form. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there is a press in the room, please do not take any unauthorized pictures or identify anyone using their full name. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. The format for this session is as follows. We have three speakers who will share for 20 minutes each, followed by three-minute open pitches until the end of the session. The topic for this session is spiritual recovery. I will now read from the 12 by 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous, pages 99 to 100. We who once suffered from complete powerlessness to control our eating and our lives have now discovered the saving strength of a power greater than ourselves. We have experienced the miracle of physical, emotional, and spiritual healing, just as we were promised when we began these steps. For most of us, the central factor in this spiritual awakening has been our decision to trust a higher power with every aspect of our lives. In acting on that decision one day at a time, we have learned a whole new set of skills for living, which enable us to clear from our lives everything which might interfere with our trust in this higher power. Now we know we don't have to fear anything that comes to us. Even when things happen to us we don't like, we know we have a way of facing each situation squarely and sanely. We have seen that our higher power will reveal something of value to us with every experience, as long as we continue practicing this new way of life. Our first speaker is Ida from San Pedro. Hi, my name is Ida. I am a compulsive overeater. Hi, I will start my pictures around. I need them for a second. Um, I just had a spiritual experience in the hallway on coming to this room. Ran into a woman who first heard me speak 35 years ago, and not only did she remember my pitch, but she remembered it in detail. And so she reminded me that, you know, I, I am responsible for what I say, but not for what you hear. But I, I need to be aware of what I'm saying, too. And, I mean, 35 years ago at this mental hospital in Pasadena, and she, she said, I remember you talked about this picture of you. You were sitting on a trash can, and you said that you felt that you were absolutely beautiful. 
in that picture. The, when I took the picture, I felt like I was beautiful. And I was like 16 years old, and I don't know what I weighed at the time, probably close to 180. And I had this blue Shelton stroller on. Shelton stroller was a brand made for old women, but it was a brand that fit me. It was a knit jersey, you know, that stretched. And it was a blue that, you know, and blue was close to heaven. And, and at that time, my goal in life was to become a virgin martyr. So blue was a, <laughs> blue was a really good color for me. And, and so I whipped out my pictures, and there it is. So you get to see me sitting on this trash can, poised and feeling beautiful um, and aiming for sainthood. And on the other side are two pictures. Uh, this picture is what I looked like when I came into OA um, in 1975. And I was 225 when I came in. And that is, it had to have been taken within a week of my coming here because I was a school teacher and we took pictures every year. And this was my school picture. So I have a running photographic record of my weight from kindergarten to um, community college. And my community college picture is right here, and that was my top weight, which was 240. So I'll start these around. Okay. I've been an abstaining member of Overeaters Anonymous for 43 years, and, and I, um, I've been passing for normal for 42 years. And uh, I'm maintaining uh, about 120-pound weight loss at this time. So, spiritual recovery. I, I needed to sort of organize my thoughts, and so a couple days ago I was sitting in the, my hotel room, and it came to me, and I thought about the milestones over the past 43 years that uh, mark my spiritual recovery. And... The first one was on April 16, 1975, when I picked up the phone and called the operator and got the phone number of Overeaters Anonymous. That was my first spiritual experience in this program. And the next one was the next morning when I got up and I abstained from compulsive overeating, in spite of the fact that the phone was not answered. My phone call was not answered. Uh, it was after hours, and there were no answering machines in 1975. So I, I went to school, and uh, this woman sat down next to me, and, and I had a lunch that was pretty well known among certain, a certain diet organization. And she recognized the lunch, and a few minutes later she said to me, why don't you try Overeaters Anonymous? So I had my second spiritual, third spiritual my first one, the phone call. My second one was an abstinent breakfast. And at lunchtime, I'm 12-stepped into Overeaters Anonymous. All within, what, 15 hours or something? If that, if that doesn't spin your head, uh, I don't know what will. And then my next spiritual experience was when I walked into my first meeting, which was at Sunday Night Alhambra. Uh, it was um, world, well, not world famous, but Southern California famous at the time. And it was a jam-packed meeting, and I was scared shitless, but I climbed the stairs, and I went in there, and I let this bearded man give me a welcome hug, which just was amazing to me. And uh, so I was on my way. The, um, 
My first five months in program, I, I lost 50 pounds, and uh, I attended one meeting a week. I didn't sleep a whole lot because of what I was thinking about, I, and I thought about the meeting um, for, you know, the whole week, and sometimes it would take me like three days to settle down after a meeting to get some sleep. And uh, the, the um, after my first meeting, I went back to my second meeting, and I heard a woman speak, and she just, she scared me to death. She talked about sex, and she talked about getting laid at the Renaissance Fair, and I thought, oh, my God. And, and, and my, my uh, added to my spiritual experiences is that I went back the next week in spite of what I had heard that week. And then the next week, I heard a middle-aged lady talk about sex. We've got a theme going here. And she was, uh, she was being excommunicated from her church at the time for living with her boyfriend. This was living, yeah, in 1975, things have changed, you know. She was living with her boyfriend, and she said, and this is a quote, so if you don't like my language, blame the lady. She says, uh, it's better to fuck my boyfriend than an ice cream cone. And, <laughs> and I went back the next week. So you can tell I was on a firm spiritual path <laughs> from the very beginning. When I got my sponsor... She told me that I was to uh, write my inventory by the big book. That was all we had at the time. And, uh, and she told me to call her every day. And I could not figure out how she knew that I wasn't talking to anybody. But I, I started following uh, instructions, and I called her every day. And she um, guided me through uh, the fourth step and the fifth step. And my amends. I made some very difficult amends, but I became willing during that first year to do anything I had to, not to live the life that I was living before I came into this program, because I could not do it anymore. It was too humiliating, too physically painful, and, and definitely too emotionally and spiritually, spiritually uh, painful. But I did no work on one, two, and three. Zero. When I asked her, she said, write your inventory by the big book. That is the only way you know that you've done one, two, and three is to do four. So tomorrow you're going to start on four. So when I hear about people writing about the third step and writing about the second step and writing about the first step, I'm going, okay, but that's not my experience. My experience is that, yeah, I can do all the writing about that, all I want, but until I've done four and five. You know, my willingness and my completing of one step shows me that I've done the one before, okay? And my fourth and fifth step were very hard, I, but I minded my sponsor. It took me like two months to write my first fourth step, and that's the only fourth step I've ever written. Everything else has been tense. And uh, it, was, it was a good one. Uh, I, uh, I, there were certain things that I couldn't say at that time, but, I event, but it gave me the courage to, and to go forward. And uh, during that first year, I returned to the church of my childhood, which was quite an experience because when I came into program, I did the whole thing about, oh, I wish there was a God, you know, but I didn't have any God, and I was thoroughly alienated from my church. And then one day it occurred to me, well, how do I make amends to this church? Because I realized that I did owe the church some amends because of what I brought to the relationship. It was not a one-sided relationship. And so 
Um, I returned to the church. I went through reconciliation, an incredibly powerful experience, but it all came unglued. And and the day that it came unglued was on a Sunday when I didn't want to go to church. I didn't fe- I didn't feel like it. And it occurred to me that the God of my childhood, who was very much a heaven and hell God, I mean, my best friend who would zap me to hell for stepping out of line forever in hell, uh, it occurred to me that if I didn't go to church that Sunday, God would punish me. But he would, and he would punish me by taking my abstinence. Not by sending me to hell, but by taking my abstinence. And on that Sunday, I had to choose between the church and my God at the time. And I chose God. And I left the church. Because I could not live with a God who was going to send me to hell or a God who would take my abstinence from me for anything. Okay. So, fast forward about 25 years. <laughs> Time flies when you're in Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I, was, uh, I wasn't going to church, but I was, getting on my, I was getting on my knees every night and doing my prayers. I was praying every night. And during those 25 years, my concept of a higher power was very different from other people's in that I didn't believe my God did anything for me except change my attitude. And I took step 11 very literally, very literally, I didn't ask for anything but attitude change. I had a rat infestation in my house. I did not ask for the rats to be removed. Now, that was carrying it too far. But I really should have been praying for those rats to be removed, but I didn't. And remember, they were under my bed, in the closet, in my refrigerator. Not in the refrigerator, but in the stove. Uh, and, and all I asked was for my attitude. But, I, but things were changing. And I was, I, was, I was feeling like it was becoming more rote. And I was losing my uh, feeling for, for getting on my knees. And I finally, at about 25 years, I'm on my knees getting ready to go to bed. And it occurred to me, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I got up. And... Um, I haven't gotten on my knees since. And what I had to admit to myself uh, that day was that I'm an atheist and that I'm not willing to go through the motions anymore. And you know what changed in my program after that? Nothing. My food food stayed the same. My commitments to uh, service stayed the same. My sponsees did not go running into the forest. Uh, you know, none of, nothing happened. Nothing happened except that I quit faking it. And uh, shortly thereafter, I got up at a meeting and I, uh, I mentioned it. When, uh, yeah, I came out of the closet. <laughs> I came out of the closet as an atheist. And, uh, and I used the word, I don't, I don't play around with, you know, whatever. I just call it what it is. And uh, I am, um, but, but my spiritual experience continued to develop because I continued to abstain. 
And I'll tell you, if it will happen. You continue to abstain. You're going to have, well, I shouldn't say that because I know some people with long-term abstinence that I sometimes wonder about, but I, um, <laughs> but I, uh, well, I've said it before. I do not, I'm one who does not believe that like the abstinence is necessarily a measure of recovery. And uh, I have, I, I, there are people with much less abstinence than me that I listen to avidly, okay? I can learn from everyone. So anyhow, uh, what happened on my spiritual path was that um, in 2012, my husband uh, started to show signs of very serious illness. I should say that even before that, somewhere around 2007 or so, uh, we found that his prostate cancer was back. He had had surgery in the early 90s, but his prostate cancer was back, and he had to be treated. And he went through; he was going through hormone treatment. But in 2012, there were obvious signs that things were going on. And uh, in the in the fall of 2012, my husband was diagnosed with. Um, mild vascular dementia. And by May of 2013, March of 2013, it was severe vascular dementia. And I was going through extreme back pain at the time. I have a bad back and bad neck. And, and the two issues came together. I had a dying husband and severe pain. And the two came together to bring me to a meditation class through my health insurance. Meditation through my health insurance. Well, actually, it was a pain management class. But they, um, they uh, started talking about meditation like the second, no, maybe the first session of the class. And I thought, I have successfully avoided meditation for 36 years. <laughs> And here I am being presented with meditation as an aid for a bad back. And, and I also went to that class, though, because of John, because I thought if, if they could help me with my back, they might help me with, with what's going on with my husband. So I went from zero meditation to a half-hour practice overnight. I didn't play around with five minutes a day. I didn't play around with ten minutes a day. They, uh, they introduced me to a website that I didn't like. So I, f I searched and I found one associated with a university in my area and I started listening to this um, podcast. And before I knew it, there I had it. I had a f half hour practice. And then about a year later, uh, somebody that I sponsor who I call a professional uh, meditator suggested that I join her group for adding a one uh, one more practice, a ten minute practice above and beyond, and so I started doing my half hour and then doing this ten minute. But ten minutes didn't do anything for me. So before I knew it, I was doing two half hour sits a day. So within a year, I went from zero to an hour a day of meditation with no God involved. I would do um, secular mindfulness. It's 
become very trendy, and I'm going to tell you, when I first started doing it, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be getting into a fad. But you know what? It works. And so when I, I do this, I use the serenity prayer in my meditation, but instead of saying, God, grant me, I say, may I, may I have the serenity. Uh, I use the phrase, uh, I adapt the serenity prayer to the phrases that I use. I use in mindfulness. And about a year into mindfulness, I was introduced to mindful self-compassion. And that is where I got... uh, If you don't have the second edition of the OA 12 and 12, I suggest you go out and buy it right now. I got into mindful self-compassion and self-forgiveness. And then this book came out and I was doing side, side-by-side comparison of the two editions because I'm that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> and here's this new paragraph um, from Step 8 on page 60 in the uh, second edition. We need to forgive ourselves for what we regret doing or not doing and for not being all we could be. Self-forgiveness means letting go of negative feelings such as shame and guilt, The power to extend forgiveness to others comes from self-forgiveness. To refuse to forgive is to continue to hurt ourselves. Forgiveness is not forgetting or pretending something didn't happen. We acknowledge that we were harmed, but we need to let go of the pain in order to move forward with our recovery. Forgiveness is not excusing. A wrong is a wrong. A wrong was, in fact, committed. Forgiveness is not giving permission for the hurtful behavior to continue or saying the behavior in the past was okay, nor is forgiveness necessarily reconciliation. That is a separate decision. I read that paragraph, and I immediately called somebody I sponsor. I said, we have it. Overeaters Anonymous is now ours. You know, we have it. Self-compassion has arrived in Overeaters Anonymous. And I have one minute left. <laughs> I am so proud of this book. And if, if there was nothing new in it, and there's plenty new in it, if there was nothing new in it but this paragraph, it was definitely worth the wait. It shows our growth. It shows that you know we no longer have to punish ourselves into trying to abstain. We don't have to punish ourselves for bad past behaviors. We acknowledge that we did it, but we can forgive ourselves. After my husband died, I went through tremendous uh, suffering. I wasn't even sure I wanted to live because I, I felt so badly about some of the things I had done. And self-compassion showed me the way out of that. Self-compassion showed me that I, I really I was coming from a place of good. And that, and, oh, that's my, I had a timer set, I'm sorry. Uh, Self-compassion showed me that I don't have to, I don't have to increase my suffering. There we are. So I want to thank you very much. Thank you, Ida. Our second speaker is Frank from Santa Clara. Yay. 
Hi, my name is Frank, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Actually, let me correct that. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, unfortunately, I left my pictures in my car. So here's what you're going to do. Imagine two of me pasted together, because that's what my top weight was, about twice what I currently weigh. And, and, and actually, it's more than that, because fat lays, weighs it, fat is lower density than bone and muscle, so it was probably more than two of me in terms of bulk. I'm the physicist, so I have to get that density in there. <laughs> but um, it's interesting. We have two atheists talking about spiritual recovery here <laughs> so far. Um, I'm going to very briefly go through the chronology of my story, and then I'll go in and talk about spiritual uh, recovery. So I uh, grew up in a very traditional church. And I converted to atheism in high school. I, I went through this. There were these seven proofs that God exists. I went through and found the logical flaws in each one of those proofs, how they were assuming the, re, the result they were trying to prove. And um, so I was very happy being an atheist, and I went along with life and gained weight. I, I didn't, I, probably eighth grade was the first time I was aware that I was overweight. And then it got worse and worse in high school. And in college, they had unlimited seconds. I gained more weight there. And by the time I graduated college, I was at about 300 pounds. And I went away to graduate school. And that's where I got to my top weight before, gradu- before OA, which was 430 pounds in graduate school. I was not very happy. And I was so unhappy. I, I am definitely a compulsive reader first and foremost. But I was so miserable with my body and my life at that point in time that I got into alcohol and other, other kinds of addictive behaviors, too. So I'm multiply addicted, but OA is definitely the major, major one. So um, I got out of graduate school, and I actually lost a little weight towards the end of graduate school because I was afraid nobody would hire me at 430 pounds. And I got down to 380 pounds, and I got a job. And um, I became friends with this woman at work. Uh, you know, I'd never dated, basically, because, you know, I didn't think anyone would, would look at me a second time. But I got, became friends with this lady at work, and then we became more than friends for a while, and then she wanted to break it off. And that was my bottom that I hit, because I was so desperate that this is the only woman in the world for me. There's nobody else for me. And... Um, so I called around and, and looked for help, and I called uh, the Palatal Medical Foundation. They said, oh, there was a therapist that just came in and gave a talk on weight loss. And so I called him. He said he would take me on as a client, but I'd have to go to Overeaters Anonymous meetings simultaneously. Now, this, luckily, this was before the Internet, so I couldn't look up OA and find out it was a spiritual program because I would not have come. <laughs> But I, again, I called the phone number, and I found out where a meeting was, and I showed up at the meeting, and they started talking about God, and I said, well, how can an atheist work this program? It was a very small meeting, like three people, and uh, they let me cross-talk and talk to me during the meeting there. And they explained that you don't need to believe in a traditional higher power. It can be anything you want. You can use the group as your higher power. And I didn't quite believe them, but somebody at that meeting loaned me the AA Big Book, and they said, read the chapter, We Agnostic. So I took it home and read that chapter, and then I was convinced this program is not for me because the only message I got from that chapter was, if you stick with us, we'll convert you. <laughs> I didn't want to be converted, you know. So I went back to that same meeting the week later to return the book. That was the only reason I was going back, was returning the book. If it had been a gift, I probably wouldn't have gone back to the second meeting. And the lady wasn't there, and I ended up, I, I had another dose of, of um, 
pain in that week between the two meetings. And so I was willing to go to a third meeting the same day I went to a second meeting. The first two meetings were on Wednesday at noon, and they were both very small meetings. On Wednesday night, I went to a, a large meeting at that time down in San Jose. And, um, and there I got the hope that I needed because a man stood up there who was thin. I mean, not just, you know, lost a lot of weight but still fat. He was thin, and he had lost over 100 pounds and kept it off for years. So there was the hope for me. Because, you know, my best hope was to lose half of my excess weight, something like that. You know, get, to, get from extremely morbidly obese to just being obese. You know, that would be a recovery for me. So I got the hope, and I kind of plunged into the program. And I, you know, I, well, I first started using the, the meetings as my higher power. And the problem is you can't take a meeting with you. So at some point, I worked out that I'm, my higher power is my higher self. It's a God within. It's, um, it, the main thing I need to know is it's not me. Frank, I'm Frank. I'm the compulsive reader. I'm powerless over food. My life is unmanageable. Me trying to manage my life makes it unmanageable. And so I turned my will and my life over to the care of my higher self, the, 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 the self within me. And, you know, a lot of the prayers talk about intuition as being our conduit to God. So I just basically turned intuition into my higher power. So intuition is my God. So that's how I kind of worked the program. But, you know, I wasn't doing anything very spiritual um, during that first part in OA. And, you know, I was kind of coasting on my laurels. I lost 180 pounds in the first year and got down to my goal weight. And I was chairperson of the intergroup. And I knew them. I went to the World Service Business Conference. I knew the members of Overeaters Anonymous Board of Trustees, you know, socially. And my ego was getting bigger and bigger. I was asked to speak at conventions and things like that. And um, my ego was so big that I, when my sponsor moved away, I didn't get another sponsor. And then I had a binge. At that time, my, my food plan when I go to a buffet was one plate, and that was it. Now, it could have been close to avalanching off the edge of the plate there. But as long as it fit on one plate, I was abstinent. And um, at that at that meal that I had, I had three plates. Now, the second and third plates weren't like the first one, but they were definitely not one. Three doesn't equal one. So, but I was between sponsors, and if I break my absence, I can't do all these service positions I want to do. So I didn't tell anybody. And I, uh, then a few weeks later, I had another binge and another binge, and then finally I had to admit I wasn't abstinent. And, um, and then I kind of went into a cave. You know, I was out and active in, every, in OA. I went to all the conventions, all the retreats and things like that. And then I went into this cave of just kind of going to at most one meeting a week, basically. Um, you know, and sometimes more, but sometimes less. I never stopped going to OA, but I wasn't going very often. And that began a long period of relapse recovery, relapse recovery. And, it, and I'm grateful that it wasn't all relapse because I'd be dead right now if it was all relapse. But I would gain 50 pounds and lose 30, gain 70 pounds and lose 40, you know, that kind of a thing. And so that meant that my weight went up and up, and I hit a higher top weight during my relapse there of 460 pounds. And, um, and you know, I, I, I got lucky. I was able to retire young in the year 2000, and I was going to work this program in retirement, and I was going to, you know, lose the weight and keep it off and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until 2006 that I started my rec- my current recovery. So I just last week I, I celebrated 12 years of recovery. Yay. So, and what happened in 2006 is that I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And the the beginning day of my absence was on the Monday before the Region Two convention in Oakland that year. It was nearby in Oakland, 
And I had not gone to conventions or retreats or anything during that whole time of my relapse, but I decided to go to that. And so I decided it would be good to be absent before I got to the convention. So I had five days of absence. I went to a meeting a day there. I went to the convention. I went to. Um, I decided to go 90 meetings in 90 days. I did that. And that was working so well that I actually kept up a meeting a day for about three years. And I've gradually decreased that. And now my, my minimum weekly requirement is three meetings a week, and that's what I do these days. And then I throw in some extra ones too. So, um, so that's the, the story in OA. Now, like I said, initially it was uh, using the higher self, and it's, and it's basically still the higher self. But now I, especially in this past year, well, there, there are several things. I'm getting lost here. Like Ida, I didn't do any meditation practice during that first time in OA and during the relapses there. I, and I had tried. You know, I went to week, weekend uh, meditation retreats, and I might keep it going for a, a week or two or a month or two or something like that. But I never had any long-term meditation practice. Finally, early on in this uh, abstinence here, I went to a commercial meditation program, an eight-week program. And the difference is I did all the homework, and the homework was to meditate every day. So I did that homework for those eight weeks. Now, I didn't start writing immediately after that, but I now have 2,000 days in a row of, eat, of meditating once a day. I've got an app that keeps track of that. So, um, so I, do 2000, I have 2,000 days in a row of meditating every day. And most of my meditations are in the 30-minute to one-hour range. I mean, sometimes if I'm really rushed and it's, I want to go to bed and I'm late, I'll do a five- or ten-minute meditation. But, um, and that happens more than sometimes. But... But I do a meditation every day, and I try to aim for a half hour to an hour. And um, so that's one part of my spiritual recovery here in this in this part of the, in this last twelve years. And so now I'm going to really just try to talk about oh, ten minutes. Oh, I talked too long on my story. Okay, Sp- the spiritual recovery in this program. All this program is is a spiritual program. There isn't anything else to it. And the twelfth step says that. It says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So I don't get to be abstinent and lose weight as a result of the steps. That's not, that's not what the steps result in. I don't get to be nice to my family because of, as a result of the steps. What, what happens from working the steps is that I get a spiritual awakening. I get a spiritual awakening from working the steps, and then that's what allows me to be abstinent one day at a time. That's what allows me to be nice to my family and friends and you know, to not be a jerk or whatever. So, you know, it comes from that spiritual awakening. And the, um, the spiritual awakening is kind of the opposite of self. And the, what I want to talk about here, I've got some notes here from like the, the big book. On page 62, it says, Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. And then we, then we resent them for retaliating. So that, that's the problem that this program is trying to fix, that selfishness and self-centeredness. And the spirituality to me is the antidote for that selfishness and self-centeredness. Spirituality is what allows me to not be so selfish and so self-centered. And I still am. You know, I'm imperfect. I'm a human. There's always going to be a little bit of selfishness and self-centeredness in me. And I recently, like about a year ago or a year and a half ago, I worked the, the steps another time with a different sponsor, and we worked it out of the, the primary purpose format. It's a, it's a big book-based OA primary purpose format for working the, the steps, and it's exactly right out of the big book. Um, 
And I, you know, it's been a completely, I mean, I've always worked my, my steps out of the big book, but this is, this has got extra special emphasis on the big book. And I learned a lot of things here about, about, um, spirituality and where the spiritual recovery comes from. And the spiritual recovery comes from 10, 11, and 12. You got to work all the other steps too, but 10, 11, and 12, you know, they, I've always heard there's called the maintenance steps. Well, maintenance, you're just going to stay the same. They're the spiritual growth steps. That's how you grow your spiritual awakening is by working steps 10, 11, and 12 over and over again daily. And daily is the thing. I'm not good at doing it, but that's what I know the goal is, to do them daily. And by the 10th step, the new, the new understanding of the 10th step that I have is, you know, I used to think the 10th step was that written thing that you do at night. That's actually an 11th step practice. If you look in the big book, it's after they start talking about the 11th step, they talk about doing that. The 10th step is exactly this. So it says, continue to watch for. So that's the first thing of a spiritual awakening is like they have a little thing up here that's always watching for when am I selfish and self-centered. So was I selfish, dishonest, resentful, or afraid? And that's what the big book talks about. Those four, those four things are all signs of my selfishness and self-centeredness. And then as soon as I recognize that I did that, I, I immediately say, God, please remove the defect at once. As soon as I recognize that I'm dishonest, I say, God, please remove the defect at once. And that's the spiritual part of the program. See, if I'm selfish and self-centered, self can't cure me of being selfish and self-centered. It's the problem. So I can't do anything myself to fix that. I have to ask for the higher power. So if you have the traditional kind of a God, you can ask that God to help you. And in my case, I ask my higher self to help me. It's not the self that, that is the compulsive reader, that's the addict, that's all that other stuff. That's the self, that's the problem. This higher self is the one that has the solution. So I ask God, please remove the defect at once. And by the way, I just use the word God, but I'm really always thinking in terms of my higher self. That's the way I translate. And, and you can say God, and that's fine. I translate the higher self. So that's the very first part of step 10, is asking God to help. Then I just discussed this with someone immediately. And, you know, I, I had misunderstood that instruction I thought that meant, well, you know, if I'm not sure if I should make an amends or not, then I should talk to my sponsor and see if I should make an amends. And, you know, if it's clear I don't need to make an amends or if I need to make an amends, I just make it on the spot. So I hardly ever contacted my sponsor. But someone pointed out to me that the, um, when, when, I, when I'm asking God, please remove the defect at once, that's kind of working step six and seven because God, God's removing all my defects, not just my compulsive reading. And if I skip this step, I'm skipping step five. And step five is a self-deflation program. You know, as long as I can keep all my dirty secrets to myself and pretend out to everybody else in the world that I'm, I'm okay and perfect and, you know, a good guy, then, you know, I, myself is protected. But when I have to tell another person all the deep, dark, dark, dark secrets that I have kept from everybody, that's a part of the self-deflation program of, of, the, of the 12 steps. So this is not optional. This, discuss it with, your, with someone immediately. And it's so much easier these days. You can just text your sponsor. It's, it's not, it doesn't take much to, to work that part, to discuss that with someone immediately. And then if I've harmed anyone, I make amends quickly. That's working step eight and nine. If I've done harm to the other person by what I said or did, then I apologize and I, I ask them to forgive me. And then I turn my... Th my thoughts to someone to help. That's step 12. And this is another vitally important part of this, of this step here. And it doesn't mean that I have to do a 12-step call on somebody. It can be opening the door for somebody. 
It can be slowing down on the freeway to let somebody pull into my lane that obviously have been wanting to pull into my lane. And I've been keeping my position because I'm, I'm important, you know. i got to get there on time. And the, any kind of thing like that, any, any kind of kindness that I can do to anybody else in the world will satisfy that part of the step. I turn my thoughts to someone to help. And then love and tolerance of others is our code. So this is the new way that I am trying to work step 10 daily. I mean, I can tell you that I should definitely be working step 10 at least three or four times a day. There, every time I get that little angst, that, uh, you know, ah, that, that kind of a thing, I should work step 10. I don't always do it. I'm, I'm great at preaching step 10. I'm not as good at actually living step 10. But I hope you guys can, um, can, can succeed where I don't. And someone at a meeting said this. There, there was this questionnaire, am I selfish? And let me just read it to you because it, it, really, it really clicked for me. If I am resentful, it's because someone did not do what I wanted them to do in the past. They did not do it my way, and that is being selfish. If I am angry, it's because someone is not doing what I want them to do right now. They are not doing it my way, and that is being selfish. If I am fearful, it is because I know that someone is not going to do what I want them to do in the future. They are not going to do it my way, and that is being selfish. If I feel guilt or remorseful, it is because I got my own way at your expense, and that is being selfish. So all of those negative emotions that we have, those are all a result of being selfish. And... Um, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, the other, the other way you could short-circuit all that is that any way, any time that I want the world to be different than the way that it is, I am being selfish. You know, if I, if I want, a, you know, a different political scene or if I want a different, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is about the world that I don't like the way it is, I don't like the traffic on the freeway, I don't like any of those kind of things there. Whenever I want the world to be different than the way that it actually is, I'm being selfish. Because reality is reality. You know, you can't change reality. Right here, this right now, you can't change it. And if I'm trying to want it to be different than that, I'm arguing with reality. And arguing with reality is being selfish. It's all about me, me, me. I'm right, and reality's wrong. So, um, so the, this is the, the, what the spiritual awakening is for me. Is it's, it's the antidote for that selfishness and self-centeredness. And there's another antidote, there's a saying that I really like about forgiveness, which is that forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. You know, as long as I'm holding on to wishing that that person didn't say that to me and, how, you know, how could they be so cruel? And as long as I'm holding on to that, wanting it to be different than the way it is, that's when I'm going to be in resentment. And if I can get to the point where I can, for, I can accept that other person exactly the way they were at that time and just accept it as being unchangeable, I won't have to go back and try to revisit that problem of what to do about them, you know, figuring out what I should say to them the next time I see them or, you know, any of those kinds of things. If I can just be at peace with the past and let it be, then I can forgive. So, you know, the, the spiritual recovery is the, re, is the antidote for my selfish and self-centeredness. Forgiveness is the antidote for my wanting the past to be different than the way it is. And, and the antidote for fear is to give up on the hope that the future will be the way I want it to be. You know, that's the other, that's the other end of it. Fear is about the future, resentment's about the past, and anger's about now. So, you know, the spiritual recovery is what I'm really going here for now. And um, 
And, you know, that's why I have hope that this 12 years can last for more than 12 years. You know, I had about eight or nine years in that first part of the program, and I was running on self that whole time. It wasn't running in any kind of a spiritual program. And so I have hope for this last, for the last part of my life here. Thanks. Thank you, Frank. Our third speaker is Joe from Oakland. Ever so much. I'm Joe, a compulsive eater. Hi, Joe. Hi, everybody. Love to see my peeps right here in the front, David. Um, so I'm actually somebody who I have photos too, and I actually think it's pretty exciting that all of us are hundred pounder people here as well. And I think that in certain ways, maybe. Um, so I'll send this. David, can you grab that? Thank you. Um, I think there's like a hopelessness about being a hundred pounder that maybe people who have like smaller amounts of weight to lose, maybe they would think it was a little bit different or whatever. But I feel like um, in my own personal journey, um, I'm somebody who, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, I'm someone who has like weighed is been as small as like a size six and been as large as a 300 pounds is my top weight that I know of because I really don't know honestly I didn't weigh myself at all so um since I came to OA I've actually never left and the spiritual part of the program is the part of the program however that was not always true at all um, I'm somebody who's grown up Catholic and then on an acid trip in 1968 became a fundamental Christian after nine hits of acid. Go figure. So it was something that actually went on for a really long time, and it became something that w- was like the heavy, it was a heavier weight than my weight, you know? It was a heavier weight than my weight. And it was something that I tried to do for a really long time, and I tried to do it perfectly because I'm a Catholic schoolgirl first, and we do things perfectly for sure. And um, so it was something that I really, like, was very uh, almost, like, trapped by. And I used to have this image of myself, like, 300 pounds in this like cage with chains around it and a padlock on it but the key was in my pocket and it was just such a crazy thing to find out that I actually the key was in my own pocket to change everything and so um my experience of all the weight gains and losses and everything are all prior to coming to OA and ever since I got here, I really knew I never wanted to leave. And I, I kind of I want to tell about my story, but I feel like I just want to say this one thing, that one of the things about it that made all the difference was to do step four and to know that I could actually face myself. Because in, in a like really fundamental sort of place, although actually I've been told by um, one of my fellow friends that, my what I called fundamental Christianity was actually probably not because our minister was a was a very academic Jewish person, and we all smoked. Everybody, it was like you walk in there, it was like going to AA meeting in Detroit. Man, it was crazy. 
So, um, you know, it probably really wasn't, and he was very scholarly and academic, and so there was a lot that was really wonderful about it, but it was also really heavy and harsh for me. And what I made it mean, I guess, because this is the thing about it. We're meaning-making machines, and we're always making meaning about everything and everybody. And, you know, what the meaning I made of it, somebody else might not have. They might have just been fine smoking their cigarette listening to that guy. They might have just fine. So for me, it was a whole different story. But um, one of the things that came clear to me, like, much later in my journey is that being a the only girl in my family, and I have four brothers, and my mom, like, she was somebody who was always very, very obsessed with food. And so there was, like, a watching of me. Um, it was always about what was I eating. And I, when I look back, and you'll see in these pictures, I mean, honestly, when I was really small, I wasn't a chubby girl or anything for, you know, until I was probably like 12 or 11 or something. So, and probably a lot of children are kind of chubby at that point, and then they stretch out and things change. But my mom was obsessed with food, and I remember watching her do crazy things with food as a kid, like in front of the TV, you know, either she was smoking or she had a gallon of ice cream or, you know, she was crazy with food. And so a lot of it was kind of like I was the, um, you know, the sort of identified person, I guess, or whatever. So she was always watching me. And, you know, later on I kind of figured out, like, I spent my childhood trying to get my mom's eyes off of me and my dad's eyes on me all totally unsuccessfully, (laughs) completely. So she was always watching, and it was always like, so I just felt crazy about food, right? But I also feel like when I came into the world, I was the person in my family that was really sensitive, and I was, like, picking up the energy of what was going on. And my dad is, like, this nicest guy you'll ever know. He's super sweet. And my mom was raging crazy. But she was trying to deal with an alcoholic childhood. Like, we didn't have alcohol in our home hardly at all. So it wasn't about that I had an alcoholic parent or anything, but I had a raging alcoholic someone that I never met. He died before I even, you know. And my grandparents apparently were very violent, and it was very scary. And so my mom was scared. And so she brought a lot of fear to us, and I carried the fear. And my sponsor, like, said to me, you know, it's not unusual that you would go to food because it would soothe what was wrong. It would soothe it. And, you know, food works super great until it doesn't anymore. And when it stops working, man, it's like, forget about it. It's crazy. So... You know, I really was kind of like throughout my childhood and everything really pretty fine. And um, when I was 19 years old, I met my husband and, um, well, let's just say became my husband. But I like he was addicted to heroin. I got pregnant and we got married. And I guess you could probably figure out what happened next. It just really had a lot. And we lived in this craziest neighborhood in Detroit. And it was like really, you know, I, I love Detroit. And most of my houses I've ever lived in, we leave our door open. You know, we'd leave our back door open. And all our friends would come in and out. I, like, love Detroit. It's not about Detroit, man. But where we lived, it was not unusual to see, like, people with guns drawn out, in the, you know, and people getting carried away for drug arrest. I mean, it was just a little scary. So I packed it on. And then I could just carry my protection with me. And pretty much you can be invisible 
while at the same time be hyper visible. Everybody in the world had an opinion about my food, and people in the grocery store, strangers, would tell me, you know, did you know what that will do for you? That you know, I was like, no, I had not thought of it. Thanks, <laughs> you know. But I mean, I really did feel I, I was, you know, I had, I felt like I was, I deserved whatever you gave me because I'm fat. And so then I went on, like, the diet to end all diets, and my auntie worked for this organization. You all probably had done it before. I'm not going to tell you their name. But I became an employee for them. And I was, like, going around and traveling and doing speaking, and I was, like, doing all this. You know, it was, like, similar to our last share where I just felt like it was all about the ego. And I thought, I'll never, you know, I'll always have this. And... um I just remembered, I share about this a lot because this was something that really kind of was like, what, you know, for me. This person came in, and at the time, like, we would weigh all the people. And if you, if a person was holding a blue card, it meant that they had at some point reached a goal weight, maintained it, became lifetime, and then, you know, they're all good to go for the rest of their lives. They're going to be skinny. Well, this guy was like 500 pounds, but he had the blue card. And I just remember like, wow, there's something kind of crazy about this. And, you know, for me, it was like, file this away, you know, note to self or whatever. But I thought, I will never do that again. And under their nose, like, I started gaining my weight back. Because this was all just about food and recipes and stuff. That's what we were doing. And it was like just it wasn't about a spiritual experience. And honestly, I didn't want a spiritual experience. I was like, hell no to that. Hell's no to that. I didn't want it. And, you know, when I came in, I mean, like, I think some of my first shares were like, I wanted to kick, and forgive me if you're like, if Jesus is your guy, but I would be like, I want to kick Jesus' ass to the door. I'm like so done with all of this stuff. I didn't want any of it. And now, like, it's so crazy. Like, a lot of people who sponsor with me, they sponsor with me because of my spiritual program. Who knew? So crazy. Where am I in my time? Oh, okay, thank you. Um, So I, you know, like, it is kind of like it. No one was more surprised about this than I, honestly. No one. And um, it feels to me like I think a lot of it, I ended up going to a a college where it was – Everything about it was about a spiritual program. We had a branch of it in Oakland, and it's called Naropa in in Boulder, but it was like the Oakland had its own version of it, and it was like this amazing place to go for graduate school. And all we we did things like body prayer. We would dance and pray, we'd be praying in our bodies, and we'd just do all this awesome stuff. And it was all about social justice and taking your spiritual practice as in a way to change what's going on in the world. It was just remarkable. And um, I feel like something like so shifted around how I started looking at what spirituality was. And so um, one of the teachers that came... Um, had written a book about the universe, and he said, you know, he goes, you got to kind of take a look at these rocks out here and wonder, like, what kind of power do they got? Because that's all that was here in the beginning on the earth was molten rock. And then what else happened? And to me, that was like, wow, that's freaking amazing. 
when you think about that, there are new species coming onto the planet, new insects, new species every day. What does that? What does that? Our bodies know exactly what to do without us having to even think about it. What does that? You know, so there's like this intelligence that's holding up everything. And sometimes like today around our world, I'm going, wow, what's going on with that? And, you know, what's it doing right now? You know, I mean, like it's a mystery and I like that it's a mystery. Um, So like one of the one of the things that has happened to me. Um, around like the spiritual practice, I have a lot of things that I do to kind of hold myself up, especially um, the way it's going right now, how things are coming down. And I know it's an outside issue, so I'm not going to talk about it. But I just mean like personally, it affects me every day about how I feel in my body. It just feels like unsafe almost to walk around. And at the same time, I'm reading a book right now about Nazi Germany, and I'm th- and, and it's very visceral. And I'm thinking about these people, and I'm going, "Oh my gosh!" So my body has the, you know, like it's carrying something more right now that feels really kind of like wow. Um, so like there are a lot of things I do, and you're going to think this is really insane. And it, my daughter's just like. Like, I was for a while getting up at, what, I said quarter to three, and my daughter's like, it's 2 fucking 45. That's insane. But now it's 2.30. I don't know. Like, don't ask me. I don't know why. But it's like, I feel like I need extra bolstering to get me out into my day and to be, like, a light. And that's, to me, what my job is. And, like, I used to feel like, because of my religious practice, I felt like, um, like I think of this scripture that says your righteousness is as a filthy rag in the eyes of God. And it's like, oh, my God. Well, hello, my God doesn't say that. at Oh, my God's like, dude, dude, you are awesome, Joe. Come on, let's go. We're going to get out there and we're going to spread the love. We're going to be the love. And um, I work in a place where sanctuary district, uh, it, I work in the school district in Oakland, and we're, like, doing some awesome stuff. And I just feel like, you know, I'm going to be about going into this space, and I send the light of God into my space. I send the light of God around. And, like, God call it whatever. I mean, I don't, I kind of hardly call it God either. But to me, it's like there's a light that is under everything. And I don't always understand how it shows up or what it's what's going on. I don't understand, like, what's going on. But I also do notice that a lot of things are happening. People aren't just sitting around smoking pot in front of the TV right now. They're just not so much. Probably some people are. They probably always would. You know, my ex-husband probably would still be puffing up. But... You know, he died of liver disease, so there you go. And I didn't, you know, and I didn't die of obesity. And I have people in my family who did, and that's a miracle. So, um, you know, whatever we would call this presence or this um, this gift is really quite amazing. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about it's so crazy that now we have the new Um, 12 and 12, because I was going to say, I talk to sponsees all the time. When someone's having a hard time, I say, go read page 97. So we're going to maybe have to frame that because it'll be gone. But page 97 in the big book on step 11 is like the thing that whenever I'm going through something or someone's going through something, I say, read page 97. You know, that's really going to help. 
and I like was talking to someone who I barely know right now and I said, well, have you read page 97? And she said, no, I, I don't really have any of the literature. So I, I scanned it and sent it to her. And she's like, oh, my God, that's really good. That's really helpful. So it might need to be framed for posterity's sake. But the thing that I um, I actually was going to read something in AA, but it's not really necessary. One of the things that I just want to say, though, is like when I, when I recently – read all the way through the big book and I thought about my husband I I always kind of thought he was doing these things on purpose that he was a heroin addict on purpose that you know that shit must be really good because you're nodding out in your plate and we're right here your family your people and you know like I just really didn't understand the malady of it and when I read in the big book about you know people thinking that they could just, you know, like rationalizing, and we do it. Well, every human being does rationalization probably every day, but this sense of like, well, maybe if I mix it with milk, it's not really going to do that to me. Or what, you know, when you read about these alcoholics, and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, it, it's torturous. It's slavery, and we're in a slavery when we're doing that with our food, you know. And, I mean, like, there, I... I over however many years, since like 1982 when I lost, I started losing all that weight, I have been um, as high as a size 26 with those clothes that don't like, the arms are too tight and the body's this big. It's like, come on, like, who makes these? Who, who are you modeling this shit after? Because who wears this? You know, and trying to like sew clothes that at least were somewhat fashionable or whatever. So being like a size 26, the biggest size that probably not, maybe not, but, and then like as small as a six and then a, uh, 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 that I have spent these 15 years in a way, basically the same size, maybe a little smaller. Now that to me, if there isn't a proof of a God, that's proof of a God right there. Because that never happened to me. It, over years and years, I had every size of clothes, you know, in my closet. And now I no longer even need to hold on to the clothes in the closet. There's no reason to hold on to those old clothes that were size 26 or, you know, whatever the versions down from that are. And so I know I'm almost out of time, but I wanted to read this August 5th um, from for today because I feel like it really talks about my experience of it and it says um, I myself believe that the evidence for God lies primarily in interpersonal experiences William James my inner being I too have an inner being the stories of many OA members disclose the existence of God became real to them only when they experienced surrender and spiritual awakening in this program a number of these individuals had always believed in God, and some were active members of religious denominations before coming to OA. One does not need prior belief, however, to have a spiritual experience. In the OA literature and at meetings, we find atheists and agnostics who describe their surrender of the problem and acceptance of a spiritual solution in the same terms. Spiritual experience is open to all. If it does not come immediately, be willing to wait in the knowledge that it will come as a result of work, as the result, as was said, as the result of working the steps. And I really, when I'm reading those steps at a meeting, I really make sure for my own sake that I enunciate the result of these steps. So for today, I believe this is a program of spiritual recovery and that all I have been able to do thus far is evidence of God 
as I understand God working in my life. So thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Joe. This meeting is now open for three-minute pitches. There's a sign-up sheet here. If you want to speak, we need you to sign the release form. everybody. My name is Lynn. I'm a real compulsive eater. I sure picked the right session to go to today. It's really beautiful. You know, there's something in the, the AA 12 and 12 that says that the 12 the steps are a set of, there's a set of principles, spiritual in their nature, that when practiced as a way of life, can expel the uh, obsession to, in our case, compulsively eat and make the sufferer happily and usefully whole. You know, and I suffered before I came here, I suffered from the illness of compulsive eating. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Didn't know at all. Had no idea. Then I came here and I, I read the doctor's opinion and saw that, okay, when I eat certain things and I engage in certain behaviors and I can't stop and I can't stay quit, right? I can't, I don't have it. I don't have the mental defense against the first bite. But it took a long time before I can connect the dots of like what makes me, what expels that obsession, you know? And it is, it's a, it's a, living the principles in my life and it's not a to-do list or a homework assignment it's it's every day like that opportunity to go to god go to some power right it's a power it's a power i happen to call my power god and uh it's it's the experience you know and i heard something once that really made it clear to me it's it's a, an awakening like i was asleep god you know this power is always there and there was a nurse that had a patient who'd come in and was unconscious, and she'd been tending to them and caring for them. And the patient woke up and was surprised. Oh, you know, you're here. And she said, I've always been here, always been here. And for me, that is, you know, God was always there for me. So many, I should have been dead for a lot in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different reasons, you know, but I survived for some reason. And uh, I could look today, and, and everything is from a spiritual axiom. It has to be, because the only other axiom I have is what goes on between my ears, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's, that's like, where's the authority in that? And I'll wrap up with one minute. Um, I have to look and see where I'm going for my information, you know, and so much when I'm coming from that, self, that self-obsession, you know, and that ego that's, you know, the inability to handle frustration, having to do everything really fast and, and being the God for my life, the omnipotent thinking, not I'm so great I'm God, just I have to burden everything. Everything's on my shoulders. I have to make sure I'm okay, you're okay, and I don't have to live that way today, right? I don't have to live that way today. I can turn that over my ego and the care of my will to a God of my understanding. So thank you all for your shares. They were outstanding. Thank you. I'm a Denise uh, Feldman, and I am 
a compulsive overeater. Hi. Uh, I'm here because I've struggled with the higher my higher power. I've struggled. I anybody that's been in any meeting, I know it's my main topic is the higher power. And then my sponsor said, "Pretend, pretend." I and I don't know jargon. Oh, a jargon. I'm really bad at jargon, but I will speak from my heart. So I just pretended I had my higher power. I would talk to this pretend person. Sometimes it'd be my grandmother. Sometimes it'd be my father who passed away. But I would just pretend. And then one day I noticed I had my higher power. I just kept showing up like he was there or she was there or it was there. And then one day I noticed I had it. And I'm a night binge eater. And I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder, and I was diagnosed pre-diabetic. I have liver disease, blah, 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 blah. So I came to OA to heal my, my body because my body was breaking. It wasn't broken, but it was breaking. And what I've gotten out of OA is, yes, my body is healing. My blood tests show that my body is healing. But also, who I am as a person is healing. And my friends and my family didn't get this huge part of me. How could I let myself go like that? And I'm in rooms with people that totally get it, totally get it. And that, you know, even my husband was trying to talk me out of coming here because well, you don't need that, Denise. You're like on this path. You're doing the right thing. And I put it out there to my higher self, and they he just kept guiding me here. So I just want to say thank you all for being here. If your higher power is an issue, keep pretending because one day you will notice you're not pretending anymore. Thank you. Hey, I'm Amanda. I'm a grateful, abstinent, compulsive eater and bulimic. Hey, family, I have no idea why I'm standing up here right now other than I heard that little tiny voice inside saying, get up there. So apparently I'm supposed to stand here and talk to you guys. And um, I was texting my sponsor this morning and um, about something that I have a concern about. And she just was like, you know, my dear, your higher power is too small right now. And I'm like, I know. And, um, and that's okay. Right? Because my higher power is so much bigger than it was when I came into this program. And um, the idea of trusting God is just, I mean, there is no higher power that when I was growing up was kind or good or loving or anything at all reasonable. You know, I grew up with a lot of violence and a lot of insanity. And so any concept of a power greater than myself was a power that was incredibly dangerous um, and not to be trusted, you know. And um, I, I started teaching at um, not not like kids, but adults um, when I was seventeen, which is really weird, right? Because I'm this young person teaching these people who are much older than me, and um, my mentor started calling me kiddo, 
And he was just this kind, loving man who, like an older gay guy who was just super sweet. And he would just say, hey, kiddo, how you doing? And for some reason, over the years, my higher power, who I call God, but that can be shorthand for good orderly direction or the great outdoors or whatever, whatever God needs to be to me that's not me. But somehow my, my higher power started calling me kiddo. You know, and that's that's the God that I need. You know, that's that's the direction that is actually helpful and healing and beautiful. And, you know, sometimes that's just, you know, taking a breath and asking the question, like, how am I right now? Right. If everything insane is happening in my life. Yes. But how am I right now? And the answer in that moment usually is I'm pretty okay. You know, and the more I work a program, thank you, I saw that. The more I work a program and I'm present, the more okay I am, you know, and so I'm really, really grateful for that. And I'll just wrap up by saying that um, I was in this program for a long time, never got it, Um, thought I was abstinent, looking back, really wasn't. And when I came back in two years ago, um, I met somebody who lived down the block from me and we had exchanged numbers and we text occasionally. One day I get a text from her that she's in the emergency room. And, you know, she wasn't asking me to come. She was just letting me know. And I said, you know, would you like company? And she was like, yes, please. And she was in severe pain going through a really big medical condition. And she was sitting there talking out loud to God. Okay, God, you know, how am I going to get through this? How, how I need you right now. Where are you? Please, I, you know, et cetera. And just that ability to witness that was so beautiful. And I am so grateful, you know, because I navigate a chronic or severe chronic pain um, and, you know, a disability. And to have that, I'll wrap up by saying to have that example of just getting through whatever is there is so beautiful. And I'm so grateful that this program shows me that path. So thanks. Let's thank our speakers and all who have done service for this session. If you enjoyed this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the All-Star Media table to order copies of this session or any other sessions. All workshops and main speakers' events are being recorded and are available on CD or as an electronic download. Please join hands as we close with the third step prayer. If you don't know it, it's on page eight of your program. Third step prayer. We can do this. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that I may better to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Coming back, it works. Thank you.